Father, thank you for uh, your charge to your church to carry the gospel around the world. Thank you for these few minutes that we could visit with the vocatures and, and we could hear about what you're doing in the lives of some of the young men in our church. Father, we want to be a gospel-believing, gospel-teaching, gospel-promoting, missionary-sending church. Would you use your word to shape us into that kind of a church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was thinking about the great excitement that we had when we went to closing on our property here, this 50-acre parcel of land that we have that we've enjoyed or tried so much and developed in ministry. If you're new to us, we're on the end of a 50-acre triangle here that has just uh, provided so many ministry resources for us. Somewhere along the line, early on, somebody said, we should plant some trees. And so sure enough, somebody came up with 1,000 saplings. They were a little bit bigger than a pencil, and we decided they were an evergreen, uh, maybe a white pine type little tree from the Forest Service in West Virginia and um, the DNR. And we, we um, planted them all the way down the line of our property here. And uh, if you would walk almost to the soccer field, on the right, there's a scrubby, crooked uh, uh, little pine tree that's been uh, abused by every whitetail buck in Jefferson County. I think that's the only one that's left out of 1,000 trees. But I was thinking about that. Uh, challenging the guys to plant the trees, and we're going to plant a thousand trees. Uh, that was like an overwhelming task. It's like a thousand trees, PV, you got to be kidding me. And so we got together, and the men worked hard one day, and they planted those trees down the line. There's a couple lessons that you learn about, about the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ in planting trees. A thousand trees. One is, at first, it seems like an overwhelming task to take the gospel around the world to all nations. How are we supposed to do that? But when you get a group together and when you catch the vision and when God's people work together, a thousand trees can be planted effectively in a few hours. It was interesting to me, by the way, a little trivia here, that in Pakistan, a young soldier made the Guinness Book of World Records by planting 20,101 trees all by himself in 18 hours. Uh, I think that comes out to about 18 trees per minute. I'm not sure what he did or how he did it, but he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for that. Furthermore, over in India... A little more trivia on planting trees here and overwhelming tasks. Um, In India, a a part of the ground around a village was susceptible to um, uh, flash flooding and so forth. They wanted to get some trees rooted in there to help hold the soil firm. And so they got together and they planted 50,000 trees in 30 minutes. Now think about it. If you were going to plant 50,000 trees or even a thousand trees by yourself, how overwhelming things. But with a team, part of a group, we can do these things. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28 as we look at our Lord's great command to us right before he ascends back into heaven. And he gives us a mandate for what 
I believe, is just an overwhelming task. And when you look at it alone, it seems impossible and improbable to fulfill when you recognize that we are connected as a church to the church around the world and that it is a mandate to the church and it is a mandate to all believers everywhere through the centuries, we can do this. We can do this. We're skipping ahead in Matthew. Uh, We've been working our way through Matthew for a number of years and, and I want to finish on Easter Sunday with the great resurrection story, Matthew's account. We're going to hit the crucifixion the week before that, and, the, and before that we're going to have a message on Judas. So we have three more messages out of Matthew, Lord willing, and we will conclude on Easter. And to do that, I wanted to wrap up this last section of Matthew's gospel this morning, using it as a stepping stone to next weekend, preparing our church and preparing our hearts to be challenged in world missions as we gather with our missionaries and with guest speaker Paul Sager from Biblical Ministries Worldwide to the to receive as a church a further challenge on taking the gospel to the world. Let's read our text. It's an interesting text. It is um, not difficult to understand. It is, as I said, uh, at, at first glance, overwhelming. The Great Commission... Verse 16, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Your Bible might say, even to the end of the age. Well, what an interesting text. I want you to see that the the heart of this is the great command to go and make disciples. And, And even as we read and as we enter into this passage, you'll make note on your notes there that it's clear to us that this is not stated in the form of a suggestion by our Lord. It is a command. Our Lord is not just talking through his hat here. He is giving specific instruction to his disciples, furthermore, through his disciples, to the church. And it is a command. Now let's pick it up at verse 16 and let's break it down a little bit here. Notice that there are 11 disciples. Now this is after the resurrection. Okay, we've skipped to the end of the story. Our Lord is alive and well. Bible students don't know exactly the timeline. Remember, our Lord is going to be on earth about 40 days past his resurrection. And some think this is around two weeks before his ascension. We're not sure. Um, but just the timing of things and, and his appointment, notice that he asked them and gave them a directive to go to Galilee to a mountain there. It's worth noting that we began our study. Matthew begins on the side of a mountain with the Sermon on the Mount, and it ends with our Lord's command given at some place of rest and instruction on the side of a mountain Um, There are 11 disciples there. Some Bible students speculate that it is possible that there were more people there because of the kind of mandate that he gives. You'll recall that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is recounting what the gospel is. And he 
talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ there, and he gives a list of all of the people that Jesus saw, or uh, kind of a summary of who Jesus saw and ministered to following his resurrection before his ascension back into heaven. It references in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that he spoke to 500 at one time. And so there you'll know that, um, uh, that our Lord would have surely taken time to do more teaching. And some Bible students like to think that it is possible the word spread and that that group of 500 might have been on the side of the mountain. It's purely speculative. It's not in scripture. But the mandate is the kind of mandate that you could imagine our Lord giving to as many as possible before his ascension. He certainly wants his 11 to know they are going to become the new powerful church planters and preachers of the gospel, and they are going to promote this uh, world vision and travel and preach and share the gospel. It says in verse 17, when they saw him, that they worshiped him. I think it's worth noting that the great commission and the gospel are driven by worship. It's part of our act of worship and obedience to simply share Christ They worshiped him, but notice that it says some doubted. We don't know what they doubted. Did they doubt the reality of the resurrection? Did they doubt that this was really Jesus? Was it an imposter? Did they doubt that the message was true? What is it? I suspect that by the time he was done speaking to them, and it's possible that Thomas was was who is being pointed at here between the lines, and that our Lord has not addressed his doubt at this point. I would put this earlier on following the resurrection. Some doubted. It also could imply that there were more people there than just the disciples. Our Lord has already dealt with the disciples. They firmly understand that he's resurrected. And there are more people there than what Matthew gave account of. They doubted. Maybe you doubt. And I trust that as you listen to the preaching of God's word and as you this Easter season come to grips with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you'll recognize that like the disciples, as you latch on to the reality of the resurrection and that our Lord is risen from the dead, he is who he said he was, that your doubt will flee. I suspect that by the end of his session with them here, there were no doubters in the audience. And it says in verse 18, and Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So this passage is a mandate to make disciples. So let's make sure we understand what a disciple is. A disciple, looking at our notes, is a person who follows another as their teacher or leader. Another word for disciple is learner. It's someone who is following someone around, listening to their teaching and learning from them and implementing into their lives that which the teacher promotes. Another word for disciple is learner. It is the role of realigning one's values, priorities, and passions to that of the master. You have a master, you have a teacher, you have a rabbi, you have someone that you esteem above yourself. You are following them around and you are, you are realigning your systems with theirs. It is not about what I think. It is about what the master says. I am his disciple. I come in underneath his teaching. So we approach the text as disciples, and we recognize that we are tasked with the responsibility of making disciples as well. Well, what a huge task it is. It is all about making disciples. Our priority task is to make disciples. Clearly from the passage, that's what our Lord 
Boiling this passage down, go make disciples. That's the priority task of the disciples, and it's the priority task of the church even to this day. Let's break it down and look at ten parts of that. What are the ramifications of this? Number one, I want to recognize that it's a serious task. It's a serious task. It's serious because it comes right from the lips of our Lord Jesus. Now notice what it says in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, For his authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. The therefore is there because he has the authority to say that. All authority is our Lord Jesus. He is the one who can say, I have all authority. No one else can say that. And didn't he have the resume? Hadn't he lived up to that for three years? He spoke to the sea. The sea became calm. He spoke to the sick and the sick became well. He spoke to the the satanically influenced and demonically possessed, and Satan fled. He spoke to those whose sicknesses had taken their very lives, and he raised them from the dead. All authority is mine, Jesus said. He had all authority. It's a statement about the power and authority and deity and sovereignty of our Lord Jesus. As a result of this authority, Jesus is worthy and qualified to give the assignment. He's worthy and qualified to give the assignment. Not only can he give the assignment, but he can expect obedience to the assignment. He can expect obedience. He has that kind of authority. So it's a serious task. It comes right from our Lord to the disciples, to the church, to be carried out. Secondly, it is a personal task. It is a personal task. I want you to see what it says here. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me because of his authority. 19, go to you, therefore, therefore you go and make disciples. Now, I confess to you that in my early elementary days and in my junior high days and in my high school and college days, I was lousy at diagramming sentences. I I didn't really get it. Uh, worse than that, uh, and young people, don't do what I did. Do what, no, do what I say, not what I did. I didn't really understand any good reason on God's green earth to have to diagram a sentence. <laughs> Drawing all these lines and writing them, so I would write lines that were meaningless, and my teacher would just shake her head. And, I mean, why diagram a sentence? Just, there it is. But I do know that if you diagram this sentence... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity. If you diagram that sentence, who's the subject? Don't you put that you out there on the edge in parentheses? I've been having diagram sentences handed to me at the door on the way out after the services. Here's what it looks like, Pastor Van. See, that's why I don't need to know how to do it. But I will tell you, because I was so arrogant... And careless that I have really suffered in my public ministry. And I owe it to my wife, Jannie Baby, for helping me learn my grammar and understand that. But I understand that when you diagram this, it's because you're going to have you as the subject. And it's going to be in parentheses. It's in parentheses because it's not stated in the sentence. It's understood. It's understood. You go make disciples. Listen, this is a personal task. He might be talking to the disciples. He might be talking to the church at large, but it is given in a personal manner where the subject of the sentence is you. It's me. Who is doing the going, the baptizing, the teaching? You are. I am. We are. Thirdly, it's a huge task, isn't it? It's a huge task. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations. Are you kidding me? All nations. So I have a smartphone and I speak to my smartphone and there's a lady in there that talks back. And I said to my phone, how many nations are there in the world? I I waited a minute, a second, and the lady spoke to me. She said this, I'm not kidding. There are either 189, 190, 191, 192, 193, 194, 195, or 196 nations in the world. So what is it? That's what it did. It rattled off starting at 189, and it might have even skipped one of the 190s. I thought that was interesting. So I looked at my phone, and I decided to read about it a little bit. And it said that uh, basically scholars agree that there are 100, uh, the most agreed upon number is that there are today 194 nations in the world. Everybody's Googling it right now. 100, don't let the voice come on. There are 189, 190, 191, 194 nations in the world. And I read, and it was interesting, it said, but this does not include Kosovo, Palestine, Western Sahara, Taiwan, Greenland, and many other partly recognized regions. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, for, there's your trivia, more trivia. How in the world are we going to reach the nations of the world? You're telling me that our Lord is asking me to make disciples and go. And by the way, the verb, the verb form of the action of go there is, in the Greek, is actually as you are going, make disciples. It assumes that you are going. So as you are going about your life, you are making disciples. And you have here given to you a huge task. It is to all nations, plus or minus 194. How are we going to do that? Mind about. Not only is the task huge, raising questions in our mind about how in the world we're going to carry it out. But it is a very specific task. It's a very specific task. Verse 19, notice what he says. Go to all nations. You are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then at the beginning of verse 20, um, it, well, make disciples. We're not there yet. Make disciples is the specific specificity of the task. The heart of the instruction is to make disciples. It's clear. It's measurable. It's attainable. I guess. How many disciples have we made in the last 2,000 years? But it does make sense if you stop and think about it. You see, listen, when Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's speaking with all authority about the gospel message, the good news. The reality is, listen, here's the reality. The reality is that, that all of the religions of the world are not equal. The reality is that that. You can believe something that will lead you to eternal darkness and damnation. The fact of the matter is that Jesus, because he is God in the flesh, has the authority to make the exclusive claim that he alone has the way of eternal and so and the words of eternal life. He alone is the way maker. And so it is possible that the nations of the world are deceived. 
Certainly, the Bible tells us that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, is at work deceiving the nations. He loves darkness. He loves death. He despises Christ in the gospel. And so it is a very specific thing that our Lord wants us to do. He wants us to go make disciples. That's the point of the passage, to make disciples as you are going. You see, our Lord was clear, wasn't he? That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes unto the Father but by me. Did it bother you that I'd said my son might knock on doors of Mormon homes? And did it maybe think for a minute, what, what business do we have knocking on their door, telling them what to believe? We're not telling them what to believe. We're inviting them to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there it is. It comes straight from the master's mouth. I am a disciple, and I'm in the business of making disciples. And I do it because Mormonism is, a, is the doctrine of deception. It is a distortion of truth. And it's not truly following Christ. But we don't like that kind of talk in our world. It's kind of politically incorrect to say that entire nations of people who are, say, engaged in Hinduism, who have literally hundreds of thousands of gods, more gods than they can even know, that they are actually duped. It is not true. It is absolutely false what they believe. Wow. That's a powerful thing if you say you believe that. Here it is. My task that I'm giving you is very specific. It is to go and to make disciples. I want you to see that it's a life-changing task. We're still in verse 19. We're to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the huge task. It's a life-changing task because we're supposed to baptize them. We are baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. I think that baptism clearly speaks of conversion. It's talking about going up to someone and presenting them the claims of Christ and challenging them to understand that they have a Savior from their sin so that they can stand before a just and holy God in the righteousness of Christ and that that alone is the word of eternal life. Peter, preaching in Acts 2, said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Listen, there is no wiggle room here. It is either truth, it is not truth. And I'm telling you, please be here and pay attention in the weeks ahead. If you're a doubter, like some of the people in the group who met him there in verse uh, 17, you must come to grips with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that authenticated his person and his message. It's a life-changing task. By the way, it's a life-changing task for those who are disciple-makers. It changes the priorities of your life. It makes you um, start your day on a different note. You are thinking about different things now because you are, ta- you are tasked from your master to be a disciple-maker. And our job is to speak the truth of Christ to people, see them repent, be saved. Changing direction is what they're doing. They're changing direction That's what it means to repent, to turn away from your sin and to follow after Christ. By the way, have you done that? Have you been to the cross and acknowledged that Jesus Christ alone paid the penalty for your sin and you will admit your sinfulness and you will become a disciple of Jesus by believing in his name, being saved from your sin and becoming a Christ follower? You are changing direction. 
I hope so. That's our task. Not only is it life-changing, but it's a long-term task. It's a long-term task. So notice as we go from verse 19 into verse 20, okay, name of the, it's life-changing because it speaks of conversion in baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it is also, it is also long-term because immediately it says we are to teach them. And not only are we just to teach, we're to teach them to observe, Jesus says, All that I have commanded. That's a volume of material, wouldn't you agree? It's an argument for being a student of the Gospels, by the way. If you want to know what Jesus taught, you read the Gospels. And then when you read the epistles, you recognize that the writers of the epistles, the apostles who wrote the epistles, that they got it all from Jesus out of the Gospels. It all fits together. And so it's an argument for knowing your Bible. If our mandate is to make disciples, and we make disciples by converting them to Jesus and baptizing them in a public acknowledgement of their faith in Jesus Christ, and then it is ongoing over the long haul of teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded, then we better know the book. We better be involved in education. But have you ever wondered why Missionaries teach English, or uh, excuse me, tr- they, they teach unreached people groups how to read and write, not English. I said that wrong. But somebody will go to a, a group of people where they've never written down their language. So why don't you just leave those people live in the jungle by themselves? They're so happy. They don't even wear clothes. They just, they're just doing great. Yeah, they're spearing each other and they're hungry half the time. And, and so somebody goes in there and teaches them and learns their language phonetically and begins to write it down. We've had transla- Bible translators here. This is part of missions work, Bible translation work. Doug and Dorcas Williams, he's now the pastor of my brother-in-law Howard Merrill and sister Kathy Merrill's church in Covington. Doug is now the pastor. He spent 15 or 20 years of his life in the mountains of Ecuador, South America, slogging around in the mud, squatting in around fire uh, pits, learning a language phonetically so that he could write it down and translate the, the New Testament to the Awa people up in the mountains of Ecuador. So why would you do that? Because they need to learn how to read and write their own language so that they can read the Bible so that they can learn all things that Christ has commanded them. Because part of being a disciple is conversion, yes, but it doesn't stop there. Missions is more than evangelism. Missions is teaching. Missions is growing people. Missions is understanding the doctrines of the word of truth. And so this is not a small thing. This is a long-term investment. How long do you think my friend Doug had to work to learn this language? He had to go to school first to learn how to learn a language phonetically and by ear. It's never been written down. There are thousands of people living on the side of a mountain who have no written language. It's never. So he goes and spends four years of his life in Bible college, and then he spends a couple, three more years learning how to translate, and then he goes up on the mountain, and it takes him the first five years to just squat around in these huts, listening, recording them on a cassette recorder back then, and listening, and then going home and trying to write it out, and figuring out an alphabet, and putting down words and grammar, and teaching them to diagram their sentences. And the reason he's the pastor of the Covington Bible Church today is because there are Allah men who now preach the gospel every Sunday. 
and who teach and go to village and they send out missionaries and they are followers of Christ. They have become disciples. They have been down to the river and they've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Doug and Dorcas Williams spent 25 years of their lives trying to make disciples in a very specific region there. It's a long-term task. And so we learn from this that it's not a small thing and it's also that teaching, teaching plays a vital role in missions. That's what Ann Vokacher is doing. She's writing curriculum. And the gospel has an ongoing long-term effect. Notice that it's results-oriented. It is a results-oriented task, verse 20. Not only are we teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, uh, the idea here is that it is to observe, to observe all that I have commanded. In other words, It is a measurable obedience that we're talking about here. It is an understanding of the words of Christ so that we live it out. So at some level, it's results-oriented. You are to come to Christ, acknowledge Christ at the cross, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be taught so that you are observing in your life all that he has taught. And notice what it says. It says... Jesus, Jesus, talking to the eleven and whoever else might have been there and to the church, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, when, when I was in school, the first question I asked the teacher is, what part of this test are we having? What, are we, what do we got to learn here for the test? What section? How many, what are we talking about here? And if they say, this test is on the whole class, I didn't even try. You got to be kidding me. Um, uh, you young people, don't do what I did here. Do what I say. You're better than I. So that ain't much. The whole thing, the whole book, the whole chapter. You got to be kidding me. Jesus looks at him and he says, to observe all that I have commanded. See, most of us think we're doing pretty good getting through third grade Sunday school. Where are we on observing all that he has commanded? All that he has commanded. And you know, in, in your... Some of you carry the NIV still, and I use the NIV for years. In the NIV where it says, teaching, making disciples, baptizing them, uh, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. The NIV says, teaching them to obey everything, everything that I have commanded. Not part of what Jesus commanded, everything. From the Sermon on Mount through. And so I decided, I better know what everything represents. Maybe in the Greek it doesn't mean everything. I looked it up in the Greek. I really didn't. It was supposed to be a joke. In the Greek, everything means everything. Pretty sure that's what you're going to find. In the Greek, everything means everything. All. All things. So listen, you can't obey what you don't know. You can't obey what you don't know, and you won't obey that about what you don't care. So there's some people in this room need to start caring. Because you might claim to be a disciple and the master has looked at you as a student and he has said, I'm teaching you, you don't need to observe all that I have commanded and you couldn't care less about your Bible. You don't read your Bible. You don't know your Bible. And so therefore, you're not much of a disciple. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have received the gospel for your eternal security in heaven But it seems to me that making disciples, that's only just like a part of it. It says baptizing them, converting, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. You better be in the book.
Remember, obedience then is the litmus test of my love for Christ. So a disciple is to be obedient. That's why we have to know what he said. Teaching them to observe. The word observe there is an obedient word. It's a cooperation word. It's a conformity word. You are to be observing this in your life. Eight, number eight, it's a Christ-centered task. Notice, it's a Christ-centered task, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I, who's the I here? The I is Christ and none other. It is Christ. Number nine, it's a joint task. And that's a good thing. It's a joint task. We're not in this alone. He said in verse 20, I am with you. You see, if you're going to plant a thousand trees by yourself and some buddies walk up and they say, we, we got this with you, it means a lot. Anyway, you have your master, King Jesus, look at you and say, your job is to make disciples, oh, by the way, of all nations. I can't do this. No, but then he says, I will be with you. You know, he's speaking to a church over the long haul. If we've had a couple millennia to be doing this. You know, if you stop and think about it, in a lot of ways, it is working, isn't it? 13 hours ago in Guam, churches all across the island of Guam, where my brother-in-law Howard and sister Kathy are, gathered and worshiped Christ and praised the Lord together. There's young people learning all that he has commanded in their Bible Institute so that they can go out to the islands of the Pacific there, Palau and other places. And this morning, Vlad, I don't know what time in Ukraine it would be, um, and Vlad got up and taught at his church. In the Ukraine, there's believers. And in Nigeria, and in Malawi, and Tom's in South Africa this morning, and the church is there. And you can just kind of connect this dot, you know, like an old-fashioned missions board in the hallway of the basement of a church with, with thumbtacks and pieces of yarn stretching all across their map and it zigs and it zags and in every country God has his people and the gospel is growing and the mandate is the same. In every church the mandate is the same. You go make disciples. Isn't that interesting? And so we're part of a team and we're, it's a joint task not only with our Lord Jesus our commander in chief says he'll be with us I'll be with you that makes all the difference, but we are together as the greater church, the greater body of Christ. The Great Commission is a divine partnership, isn't it? It's a divine partnership. We're not to think of ourselves as the only ones doing this. Number 10, it's a time-sensitive task. It's a time-sensitive task. And I know that many of you are becoming time-sensitive right now. (laughs) It's a time-sensitive. It was because of the Skype, you know. Um... That was supposed to be a joke, but (laughs) teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, even unto the end of the age. We don't have forever. We have right now. We have this week. So how does Fellowship Bible Church get on task and stay on task? If the task of the church is to make disciples That's what next weekend is all about, reminding ourselves of this priority task. First of all, I would suggest that it begins with a passionate leadership. It begins with a passionate leadership. It starts careful, I think, and it trickles down. Godly, growing, spirit-led, wise, careful, evaluating our ministries, expecting results, faith-stretching vision, 
getting out of our comfort zone. I haven't heard the final word yet. I might get a nod from one of, from a chairman of elders back here. He was over there this morning, but it was my understanding that Carneysville Church was able to sever from the PCUSA yesterday, and I got the nod. Praise God. It is now officially Carneysville Bible Church. And you ask, why is the leadership helping these little churches in our community? It's because of the Great Commission. It's because we're to go and we're to teach and we're to lead people to Christ and baptize them in the name. There's 8,000 names in the Carneysville zip code. Do you think those 8,000 names are going to fit in Fellowship Bible Church? Well, they certainly aren't, at least not for the next who knows when. It takes us forever to get the wall blown out, for one thing. (laughs) And so, how are we going to do it? We're not going to do it, are we? Fellowship Bible Church at this location, in this body, will have a great impact on... Jefferson County, but we will not do it alone. And so when you drive by Covenant, pray for them and their pastor, Joel Rainey. And when you see signs out of some of the schools, like Harvest Point, still the school, and you drive by Mike Witham and First Baptist in Ranson, and other churches in the community, and go through the curve and the junction, and there's the Baptist church, the Methodist Church, pray for them. Pray that we would be together proclaiming Christ and baptizing and discipling and seeing lives transformed. We cannot do it ourselves. And we need pastors and teachers and leaders and congregations and churches everywhere. That's where we need them. How many are enough? Till everybody's reached, right? We have a mandate from the master. Make disciples. Yeah, how's that going for us? It's actually getting to be embarrassing how long it's been since we've baptized anybody. It's right there in the text, isn't it? So we make disciples. Not only that, we need a committed membership. A committed membership because it spreads through the body. We're Christ-like, we're growing, we're involved, we're evangelistic, we're willing to go, and maybe even more importantly than that, we're willing to let our kids go. That's a scary thought. We make disciples as a membership. Personal ownership is necessary here. Personal ownership, and it oozes all over. That's a really technical term. It oozes all over. Praying, we're praying, we're learning, we're growing. Our home, our marriage, our life is in order. We're holy, we're clean, we're usable. You see how all and we're together? We have a task. We have a responsibility. And when we're distracted and when we're mired down in the muck of life, we can't get her done. We have a line that Tim Laymaster's dad came up with years ago. Junior Laymaster's with the Lord. And Tim is our children's director. And Junior was kind of a go-getter. He kind of stick his neck out and go, go to work, you know. And I see that in Tim when he's walking down the hall. <laughs> and I call him Junior sometimes. And, 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 and out of that, and me teasing him, he'd say, you got to take and do things. That's from his dad. Let's take and do things. Get her done. We need to be a church to take and do things. Fulfill the Great Commission. Make disciples. We need ownership of that. Who's supposed to make disciples? I am. You are. Make disciples. If you're a church that believes that the leadership ought to be committed to making disciples and you're a membership committed to that and you want it to ooze all over, will you just say amen right now? Amen. Amen. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we need your help. Thank you for the promise that you said you would be with us. 
It is an absolutely overwhelming task to think about making disciples of all nations. And yet, we'll be without excuse if we stand before you and plead that we couldn't understand the text. It couldn't be clearer. We recognize that we live in a world that bogs us down, and it's not easy to live in this world. We have a lot of issues to deal with, and it distracts us. And yet we recognize we live in a, in a privileged time in history where we have tremendous resource, and that our ability to promote your gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and to make disciples and to baptize people, to, to use our resources in that way, the opportunities are greater than ever. So would you please help us as a church be missions-minded, be evangelistic in our hearts, in our drive. May the priority be here to make disciples, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.